My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. I'm very thankful uh, that you're here uh, because I, I want to tell you a little bit about what life is like in the Gleason household, okay? This might resonate with you. We can have stories afterwards at our fellowship time. But for whatever reason, at the Gleason household, I'm the IT guy. And I'm not that smart, right? I, I, I don't know uh, a lot, but it is uh, constant at my household. The more electronics we get, the more dad's responsible. So here's kind of like an average day or average week. Hey, dad, the treadmill's not working. As if it's my responsibility, because it is, I'm dad. Hey, dad, the Blu-ray player isn't working at the treadmill, so I can't watch my next episode as I run. Dad, YouTube on the Blu-ray player at the treadmill is not working, and I need to watch somebody play Minecraft for 45 minutes while I run. Or, hey, uh, hon, uh, the, the power washer's not working, uh, and I, I need to wash the patio. Or, um, hey, babe, uh, the, the, the weed trimmer, I, I can't get it started. There, I can smell gas, but I don't know what's going on, and it might be flooded. Can you fix it? Or it might be like, hey, dad, my tablet, I, I, can't, I can't connect uh, to email. Can you help me out? Or my phone, why is my phone draining so quickly? Okay, here, fix it. Um, my, my life is a series of figuring out things on Google so that I can help them right? I mean, it's just like, hey, my lights, this was a recent one, uh, my taillights out in the back of my car. I go, well, good for you. Go to AutoZone. Go to O'Reilly's. Tell them your car. They'll, they'll help you out. Well, no, I didn't do that. And we sat down. I talked about electronics. I started at the battery. No, no. I, I went to Google. I went to YouTube and I showed them, hey, here's what's going on. You need an 1157 or whatever and everything and go buy it and come back and we'll do it together. But my life is a series of helping things get restarted. The most common thing I say to people, and you know it's true if you're ever in IT is, have you turned it off and turned it back on again, <laughs> right? I sound like Roy from the IT crowd. And it's just one of those, just sometimes just a computer, an electronic device, a microwave. It just, just unplug it and plug it back in. Just, it just needs a restart, right? It just needs a refresh. We just need to start over, right? Why don't, why don't you just upgrade your operating system because you're four or five levels behind, right? That, that'd be the easiest thing. And I think that's true in many ways in life. I think it's true because you and I get broken down at times. You and I get clogged. You and I get interruptions. You and I have times when things are not working as we think they should work, as we know they've worked. And we just need some kind of a restart. 
Uh, it might be a restart in a relationship. I, I know that. I'm, I'm a pastor. I hang out. I talk. I have coffee on, on the phone. I, I email. I pray. There are many of us here that we just need to restart a relationship. Something's gone bad. There's been some, you know, bad mojo between people. And it's like, why don't we just start over, right? I have helped so many folks along the way just say, do you ever think it's possible that you could restart your marriage? I remember sitting with a young couple and they were going to get divorced and it was just, let's just read this. It was a passage of scripture and I want you to go away this week and I want you to reflect on that and write your thoughts and come back. And that's all it took. That was like a miracle one. Okay. They're not usually that easy, but that restarted their relationship. Uh, For some, it's about finances. We love our Dave Ramsey courses. It's changed my life, my wife and my, you know, our whole outlook on finances and giving. It's changed our boys as they've grown up. They're a part of that as well. And sometimes you just need to restart. You need to say, hey, uh, bankruptcy is a good place to restart, right? Uh, The stock market crashing and all my 401k being gone, it's, it's a great place to restart. We need times where we step back and reflect and we just push the power button. Or go behind the device and just press the reset button so that we can just start over again. And I think about that in terms of our faith. Sometimes we need to do that as well. I was just reading something this last week uh, so through some coaching material. And it it just addressed the fact that as a a, a pastor to a church, because that's what I'm doing a lot of coaching pastors of churches, that churches go in seven-year cycles And that about every seven years, you need to reset things at church. You need to restart things at church. You need to reevaluate all your programs. You need to reevaluate all your budget. You need to reevaluate all your staff. In the early days of Sunrise, in fact, I look back chronologically, about every seven years, we made some major decisions at Sunrise, and it changed everything. I would use a whiteboard, and we would put everything up on the whiteboard that Sunrise did, every activity, every day, every hour. We would just put it there, and I would grab this eraser and say, a third of that has to go. And I was like the most hated man in the room. Well, because you don't want your thing to go, right? Okay. Or some of them go, please take my thing away. I need my life back. Yeah. And, and so even a church needs a restart. For the next several weeks, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this struggle of pressing the restart button on our faith journey. I'm an old youth pastor. And so when I was a youth pastor, I used to tell young people, you know, I'm so glad your parents brought you to church the day after you got out of the hospital. I'm so glad they raised you in the pew. I'm an old youth pastor. We had pews back then. I'm so glad that you came to Sunday school class. I'm so glad that you participated in Awanas and VBS. I'm so glad that you did all that. I'm so glad you're in youth group right now. But what will really make me so glad is when you own your own faith. Because you're living off your parents' faith. Again, my wife and I have three teenage sons. We know this. We have conversations with them about this. It's not a bad thing that we've done. We've just carried them along. But at some point, every person, they have to make a decision, right? They have to own their own relationship with God. And if you don't do that, you'll either just leave church, which is, you know, one direction, or maybe worse, stay at church and just put on a happy face, And you could go to church for years, decades, and just punch the clock every time you come in and out. And and you know in your heart, those were good stories as kids. You know in your heart and soul that those were some great moments. But as for you, you don't really, really believe it. 
or the pain of life or the suffering of life or the season that you're going through has caused you to doubt whether there's a God, whether that God cares for you, whether that God still has a plan for your life, a purpose for your life, whether on a regular basis he even notices you. And so I think in many ways, it's good to restart. It's good to step back and say, what would it look like to kind of wipe the slate clean on our faith? Not that we, you know, delete things, but that we just reevaluate them and ask, okay, now as an adult, what does that look like for me? If I were to come to faith now in this moment, what questions would I be asking? What objections would I have? What hurts and pains in my life would I need answers for? And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. Um, I know that as children, we do those little connect the dot, you know, pictures and everything. We have a lot of dots in our lives. I want to help us erase the picture and go back and connect the dots of our faith. So here's the question. Where do we start? If we're going to restart, what, what do we start with? If we're going to just go with a blank slate? Um, well, here's what I want to say today. Um, and we're going to build on this through the series. I want to start by not saying, let's go to the Bible. You're going to call me a hypocrite in a few minutes when I open the Bible. Okay. But what I mean by that is sometimes our view of the Bible that's pressed upon us, that's taught to us, is a view that does not allow us to ask questions. We just have to believe it because the bumper sticker says, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Check your brain at the door, right? But what if we were to ask the question, if we didn't have a Bible, where would we go? Because if you think about it, the early followers of Jesus did not have a Bible. Okay, they had the Old Testament, which is the Jewish Bible, right? No disrespect to that. It's the Jewish Bible. But not all of them were Jewish. In fact, as the church grew, they weren't Jewish. And so they had no sacred text. The early followers of Jesus Christ, they had, as you progress through, some uh, visits by teachers like Paul or John, some apostles. They had some stories and fragments. They had some hymns and reflections that were spoken about in their congregation. But they didn't have a Bible because there was no Bible as we know it in New Testament. It didn't exist. Uh, they didn't have the letters of Paul unless Paul had sent them specifically a letter. And they were told, hey, after you read it, pass it on to the next church. Make a copy for yourselves, put it in your archives, and then pass it on. But they didn't have tablets and phones where you could just zip up any verse. You know, just ask the question, hey, where's that in the Bible? Because that didn't exist. In fact, the stories of Jesus, the Gospels, weren't recorded till many decades after. And the words of Paul and the words of the other leaders were filtering through the early church for about 250 years before they were collected together. And the body of Christ, the leaders said, you know what? These are the ones that reflect the heartbeat of God, what the spirit of God has been doing. We see God moving in these. And that's a whole process called canonization. But I don't want to geek out on you. What I want to tell you, though, is that long before that, people would just go to church. And they wouldn't preach from the Bible because the Bible didn't exist. They would tell the stories of Jesus and they would sing the songs and they would talk about the letters of Paul or John or Peter. They would read the book of Revelation and whatever. But the reality is you and I have such an advantage that I think becomes a disadvantage when you've grown up in church. Because you read it backwards and you tend to just dismiss it. I know I've done that and I'm sure you've done it. 
So the first Christians, think about it, to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus numbered only about 100, 120 people. That's all they had after the thousands and thousands in the crowds. All that's left after Jesus has risen again is about 120 people. That's it. They were lower class people. They were the uneducated. They were the day laborers. So they weren't like the elite. But within three centuries, within three centuries, they numbered 30 million followers of Jesus. And they numbered over half of the Roman Empire, all without the Bible you have. And all without the Bible I have. So where would you turn to if you wanted to restart in life? I want to show you a picture. And I, 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 you know, I tell you this, it's in the Bible. Okay, it's in the book of Acts. But a picture, a story where we see that go on. That if you didn't have any Jewish history, so you didn't have the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, you didn't have that. Theirs is ordered differently, but you get what I mean. If you didn't have all this church experience, maybe you were religious, maybe you were really intellectual, maybe you asked a lot of questions and you were striving and trying to figure life out. Okay, you're not passive, you're active. What would you do? What would you listen to? What kind of questions would you ask? What would it take for you to have faith in this guy named Jesus? Well, the Apostle Paul was a guy that, at least as far as we know, never met Jesus in his lifetime. Okay, he was raised uh, as a Pharisee and he interacted with Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. But We have no indication that he ever saw Jesus or ever heard Jesus directly. That probably would have shown up in his writings. But after Jesus is gone, he's dead. He's been buried. He's resurrected to brand new life. And these Jewish people are following Jesus as Messiah. They're spreading everywhere the news that Jesus is now the one that God has been waiting for to deliver. And he's delivered now and we're his followers. He set out to persecute. He set out to shut it down. He set out to kill them. And along one of those journeys, he met Jesus. He saw a vision and met Jesus. But we don't ever see a time where the physical Jesus sits down and interacts with Paul. We know there's some teaching that God downloads to him. We know that. It's very cryptic. He talks about it. But the fact is, is he's not an eyewitness. So he hangs out with the eyewitnesses and hears these things, not only believes these things, believes them so passionately that he knows they're true. He has to go tell other people about him. And he leaves the comfort of his home, of his church now, and he goes around the world and he shares the message of Jesus. And, and I want to read a passage in Acts chapter 17 that's a looking over the shoulder of Paul that gives us an insight to this question. If you didn't know anything about the Bible, where would you begin? Because that's where Paul began with a story, a story about Jesus. Now, um, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he's a historical figure. That's not a disputed issue. I don't care where you go. Everybody says Paul was a historical figure and he wrote and things like that. They may dispute what he wrote. This is a real guy. The reason I'm saying that is this is a real man that lived embedded in history. This is not a Bible story that somebody made up. If you have enough faith, you can believe it. This is a real dude, okay? That's embedded in history, okay? So he goes on a mission to tell people about Jesus. And on one such encounter, he finds himself in Athens, Greece. And he has been sent ahead by his friends because uh, there's a lot of opponents to what Paul is doing, a lot of Jewish people that are not excited about what Paul is saying. And they're tracking him down, trying to destroy him. There are people who want to add Jesus and Moses together and make everybody follow the law and be circumcised and do the rituals and all that stuff. And then you can be a Christian. So Paul's on the run. He settles down for a little bit in 
in Athens, and he's there in Greece, and he starts hanging out. Athens is an intellectual capital of the world. It's amazing. The, the things people think about, the things people talk about, all of the life of the intellectual world. You would talk about it like, you know, the Cambridge, you know, the Oxford of the world, maybe the upper echelons of New York City, the people that are intelligent, the, the scientists, the explorers, they're the ones that are really thinking hard about this. They're hanging out there, and they constantly have conversations about this. And so Paul walks into this city, this big metropolis, and he walks in and he just starts talking about Jesus. And so let's take a look at this. And it starts with this in chapter 17 and says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, these are his friends. He's waiting for his friends to show up. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. Now, what we'll see later is that he had gone up to a place called the Acropolis. You can go there today. We've got a group going to Turkey and Greece in the footsteps of Paul. They're going to see it. They're going to go up there. They're going to walk up on the Acropolis. They're going to see the temple, what's left of the temple of Nike, buy some shoes. No, they're going to go up to the Parthenon. They're going to see what's left of that. Most of it's been destroyed over time. But at the time, it was, a, it was like a mall of idol worship. It was, it was just, that's literally actually what it was. It was a mall of idol worship. You go up, and which store do you want to go to? Which, which product is going to save your soul is going to satisfy you, all right? Stay in the courtyard long enough to figure out if it's the Apple store or the Samsung store. One of those will save your soul, right? That's what it was like. And he goes up there and he's distressed. He's agitated. He's frustrated. He's upset because this is all false worship. They don't know the true God who loves them and desires them to be in a relationship with him. And so they're, they're just worshiping false gods. So it says here he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. The synagogue, obviously the Jewish place of worship. And so he would go there. He would, he's a Jew, so he could talk about Jewish history. and talk. Some Jews would believe the God-fearing Gentiles were Gentiles, were Gentiles, non-Jews, who actually believed the God of the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, and they would worship him. So those groups of people. And he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. So he's walking in the courtyard there. He's walking out, you know, where people buy food. He's hanging out at Panda Express. He's going to Subway and Sabaro and he's getting a slice of pizza and hanging out and he's talking about Jesus. He goes into all those stores, not Victoria's Secret because he's single, but he goes into all the other stores. Okay. And he hangs out there and he's just naturally talking about Jesus and he's talking about God's love. The text goes on. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, now who are these guys? Well, okay, Epicure, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they're like the same but the exact opposite. So the Epicureans, I, gotta, I wrote this down. The Epicurean goal was to get as much out of life as possible. They were the hedonists. They knew that you only go around once, so here's what you need to do. Extract as much pleasure out of this world as possible and wrap your intellectual and religious ideas up into that. that those were the Epicureans. And then the Stoics were the opposite of that. They still believed you only went around once, but in order to honor the gods, you better do it by denying yourself all your pleasures. Basically, the Epicureans were the party people. The Stoics went to the library and read. Okay? All right. And they were the ones that said, no, you can't have any fun because this is your only one body. Don't defile it. It's all about the brain. It's all about how you think. All right? So he goes in and hangs out with these people. And, and the... The reality, though, is neither of these groups really believed in the gods. They didn't really believe that the gods would show up. They didn't believe the gods could be interacted with on a daily life. They had decided, yeah, they were spiritual. 
i.e. they were religious, but they didn't participate. We got a lot of people like that in America today. I, I, I mean, more and more, right? The nuns, we call them. They no longer want to go to a religious community, a gathering, a church, or a faith assembly. This is what they say. I can worship God on my own. I don't need other people. Now, that's just as true then as it is now. Because we disconnect our faith from reality. And that's what they were doing. And so here's what it says. He has a debate with them. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, What's this babbler trying to say? Literally, the word is seed picker, like a little bird that would just pick some seeds here and pick some seeds there. They basically kind of say, you're scatterbrained, and you're just like picking whatever's cool and putting it together and assimilating. You have no new ideas, Paul. But they don't quite know, and so they invite him. So what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Now, the reality of this is if you're preaching about a foreign god, you have to have permission to preach about a foreign god. Because there were certain gods of the city and of the state and of the tribe and of the businesses. And you were not allowed just to come in and introduce a foreign god. You had to get permission to start your own church. You had to go to the IRS and get a 501c3 and start your own establishment. And then you could be a church, right? That's kind of how it works today. You had to be somehow covered by a larger organization. And so what's going on here is that they're curious, So it says they took him to the high council of the city. Literally, that's the word um, Areopagus or Mars Hill, we call it. Mars Hill, and I'll show you a picture in a minute, of where they debated all this. That They talked endlessly, tirelessly. Come and tell us about this new teaching. They said, you're saying some rather strange things. We want to know what it's all about. So there is a curiosity, all right? They have a desire. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. This is just like the cheers bar. They just go hang out, get a drink, and they talk about their life, right? It's not really connected to true life. They're just disconnecting from life by their intellectual endeavors. They talk a good talk about wanting to do something, but when push comes to shove, it's just talk. And so they endlessly debate. And so Paul is taken up to this place. And I want to show you a picture of this place. This is a, a shot I took from the Parthenon looking down. And I don't have time to show you a panorama. The, the place where Paul hung out, the Agora, the marketplace is down over here. The Parthenon's up here. The Acropolis is a view right here. And you can walk up here. Here there's a plaque with Paul's words on it in Greek and English. But so Paul was taken up here. You can see little tiny people up here. And um, he was taken up there. That was like the civil court of the day. He was taken to the place of a decision of judgment. Because we really want to know what you're saying. Now again, so here's why I'm sharing this with you today. What if you didn't have the Bible? What if you didn't grow up in church? Where would you start? Or what if you grew up in church and you heard all the stories and you just accepted them blindly and yet because of the occurrences, the happenstances, the pain of life, the reality of where you're at right now, you're like, I'm wondering if any of that's true. Where would you go? Well, here's where Paul went. Look what he said. It says, so Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you're very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. Now, see, this is like, we're going to cover our bases. We're going to protect our rear end, right? I mean, we got a lot of gods here. But what if we missed one? 
uh, th- there's the false beliefs that were taught where the gods would show up and walk along and, and they've received or rejected them and then they would be punished and all that. So it's a lot of that. So let's just cover our bases. And, and if that God ever shows up, we're going to, oh, we got an altar for you right here. We just didn't know your name. We covered our base, right? We're worshiping you in ignorance is what Paul says. This God whom you worship without knowledge, without knowing, in ignorance, not, uh, he's not saying it disrespectfully, he's saying you just don't know. You, you just do not know. You're worshiping a God. Now, is it true they were worshiping the Jewish God, Yahweh God? No, but he's trying to make a connection. He goes, you're worshiping and you're covering your bases. And I want to tell you about that God. This is the one I'm going to tell you about. And he goes on and he says this. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. You notice he didn't start with John 3.16. Now, the words of John 3.16 had already been spoken. And maybe some of them had already been written down. Actually not, because John wrote about 95 AD, many, many years, about 60 years later. But the concept of it would have been shared, right? He didn't start there. Hey, let me tell you about Genesis. God creates the world. Well, he actually kind of starts there. Look at this. He says, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his need for he has no needs. I mean, think about this. He goes, man, you've done a good job. All that marble, all that limestone, that's really impressive. I've never in all my journey seen an Acropolis like this. I've never seen a Parthenon, a worship place, a set of idols. I've been to a lot of places, Paul could say, but you guys outdo them all. The beauty and the splendor, stunning. The real God needs none of that. Now you're kind of wasting your time. You've wasted your time building an edifice when that's not even where God shows up. He's too big for that. He says here, you can't serve his needs because he has no needs. You know, in those, just like in the Old Testament Jewish time, they would offer sacrifices. There would be meat. They would offer to an idol. They would have offerings they would give. And if you were in a guild and you were like a tradesperson, you were an educator, every time you got together, you collected an offering and you put it towards a worship of your God or goddess at a certain time. And you would show up and you would celebrate all that and have a party and do these things and go to your idol and you would lay that offering before your idol and sacrifice it. And, and that's just what they did. And Paul says that you don't need to do any of that. That's just worthless. It's empty. He himself gives life and breath to everything. And he satisfies every need from one man. He created all the nations through the whole earth. He doesn't even name Adam. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall and he determined their boundaries. Now what he's talking about is this supernatural God who's sovereign over all quote-unquote gods. He's the true God. He set all this up. Do you think in your own arrogance that you could contain him in a building? Do you think that he wants to come and bow down when you bow down before him? That he needs your meat that you're offering? Is that really your sum total idea of the God of all gods? He's so much bigger than that. And he has this plan that he's been working on. In fact, that's what he says. Look at this. It says his purpose was for the nations, everyone to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him though. He is not far from any one of us. I want to stop for just a minute. I don't know what your story is, where you're watching online or how much you participated here at sunrise in person, you know, or electronically. But the reality is, is that God is bigger than that. And in as much as me and my feeble words and all of us and our feeble attempts to explain this, God, it's pretty feeble. 
Because he's so much bigger than that. In fact, he's so big that he put in your heart eternity. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that you have eternity planted in your heart and you have a longing. And your longing has to be fulfilled and you will go to whatever length necessary to fulfill that longing. Even though you may not understand it, even though and especially it might lead to pain and suffering. I mean, how many people, how many of us, we pursue a longing and it destroys us. The very desire we have ends up destroying us. See, God has put desires and he's the only one who can fulfill those desires. He's not hidden from you. He's right where you are. You just can't see him, Paul says. He says, for in him, we live and move and exist. That's one of their philosophers who said that. He's quoting not the Bible. He's quoting Greek historical understood everybody gets it oh yeah you're quoting something right if i were to stand up here and say you know gorbachev tear down that wall anybody old enough would know who said that right ronald reagan right if i were to say to you we choose to go to the moon not because it's easy you would know who said that right i would not have to utter the name jfk right if i were to say Start talking about a battleground, a battlefield that's hollow and sacred. You would know I'm talking about Gettysburg. If I were to go back and say, we the people, in order to form a more perfect, you would know we're talking about the founding fathers, right? So he doesn't even need to put their names here. And he says, you know this is true because you've written it down in your hearts and on paper We live and move and exist in him. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And so he's acknowledging they've got a little bit of truth. They just don't have the full picture. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. He goes on. He says, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now, and now he's getting to Jesus, he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. That's the message that John the Baptist preached. That's the message that Jesus preached. That's the message that all the disciples of Jesus preached. That's the message that Paul preaches, and he's preaching it to people who've never heard about the Bible, never heard about Jesus, never heard about God. And he just presents this simple idea that if you want to really restart your life, if you want to have true faith, you've got to repent. You've got to turn from your sins and turn to God. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man, doesn't even say the name Jesus, he has appointed and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Now, that takes a lot to believe that. But in that culture, in that time, in that age, there's a lot of theoretical ideas about the physical and the spiritual, the understanding of God's coming down and dwelling in human bodies and going. And Paul just says, I just want to tell you about the real God. It's real simple. Man, he loves you. He created you to know him and he longs for the day you long for him. He woos you to himself. In fact, the nation you were born in, the city, the state, the family, all that was for a specific purpose so that you would get to a point where you would see him. But you don't see him by doing all this religious stuff you're doing. 
And that's great. It looks good. It's empty and hollow. He doesn't need that. He doesn't want that. He wants you. In order for you to come to him, though, you have to confess that and admit that. You have to turn from that. That's the word repent. You have to turn to him because it's, there's a day coming when God's going to judge everything. And he proved it by raising this man from the dead. That's, that's what we call the gospel message. Jesus himself, not even naming it. And then he goes on, and this is how this concludes. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, now remember why they laugh, because you only go around once in life, right? They did not believe in a resurrection of the dead. Okay, they didn't. You only go around once, either get it all or deny yourself, either way, but you don't go around twice, okay? Some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. So that's what, I mean, people have stood up there and quoted it. It's like, what, 17 minutes, 18 minutes to read the whole thing? That's a pretty, man, you're going to like, man, could your sermons be that short, James? That'd be awesome. Okay. Sorry. Some joined him and became believers, and then among them, Dionysius, a member of the council, that council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Okay, now the reason I bring all that up, the reason I share that entire passage with you is simply this. I, I, the older I get, the more I discover that it's, it's rarer and rarer for people to want to take an honest look at Jesus. An honest look at Jesus. I happen to be a, a little bit on the intellectual side in the sense that I love to discover, I love to read. I have whole volumes of books on my shelf about the historicity of Jesus and Paul, about the historicity of how the Old Testament came together, the New Testament, about the 400 years between the Old and the New Testament and all that went on there and set the stage for Jesus and all those things. I have literature from the time, a period of people who didn't believe in Jesus but talked about Jesus and the miracles of Jesus. I love all that stuff. But it's not common anymore for me to have someone at my desk, at my table, sitting with coffee saying, can we look at the evidence? We don't want to look at evidence anymore. We just want to go by what we feel to be true. But what Paul just said is there's evidence there. And whatever your feelings are, you have to subject them to the truth and the evidence of Jesus Christ. Because if you know you need to restart, restart comes by asking the question, who's Jesus? Who is Jesus? So that's the question we want to wrestle with. I want to share a video from a friend of mine who I got to know a couple years ago, lead to Christ, and he's going to get baptized at the 11 o'clock service. So watch this. Hi, my name is Jeff Lipke, and um, this is my story. I was born to a loving family. Uh, um, I grew up in Washington. I grew up on a lake. Um, had a lot of fun times water skiing, snow skiing, dirt bike riding, a lot of outdoor activities with family and friends, and, and just had a great life. Um, I found alcohol and marijuana as a young teen and, and had my struggles um, with that. Fast forward a few years, um, after graduating from college, I moved down to Oregon uh, for the job that I got that I actually still have now, and um, I got married with kids, and, um, and the, the struggles with alcohol was still there, it was still pulling on me in a negative manner, and um, it was really at that time that I decided that it would be good um, to try to take a different path and, um, and try to become a better man. Um, very, it was very difficult thing to do, very scary. Um, and really at that time I, I did, I believe God was working, uh, in my life, um, 
helping me, but not knowing it myself. And it's at that time that I, I began to attend Alcoholics Anonymous, and that is where I did find God, and I found God through other people there, because I do believe God works through <clears throat> other people. And um, so then, uh, a couple years into my good sobriety, things were going well for me personally, um, but I did, uh, my marriage began to deteriorate. And, um, and then I went through a long separation and divorce, um, which was very difficult, however, that the my my relationship with God got even stronger during these dark times because I was really relying on on God. Um, uh, fast forward a couple more years, and I met my wonderful fiance Tony, who is a woman of the Lord, and um, we started to attend Sunrise Church. Um, I really got a lot out of James' sermons, and he was gracious enough to to meet with me personally to um, to explore more spirituality and, and Christianity and, and becoming a Christian. And, and it's at that time around then that I received Christ in my life as my Savior. So I went from being an agnostic to being a follower of God to receiving Jesus Christ as my Savior. And that's why I'm here today, to be baptized. I love that. I love that. Uh, that story has been repeated over and over and over and over and over again in the last number of decades of Sunrise Church. I love the fact that it's been 20, just about 20 years since we started our celebrate recovery, our recovery ministry. We, we uh, did a series called The Road to Recovery. And if you're old enough, you remember the song. Okay, we're not going to sing it. Praise the Lord. Uh, but, but we said we as a church need to turn from being a church that only reaches insiders to people who are on the outside and start reaching them. And, and we now see people that are homeless come in and find family. They find a place to live. They find a relationship. They find a job. We see people that have come out of prison because they've done horrible, despicable things who've come now to faith in Jesus, who come and attend and are part of our ministry and their lives are forever changed. And their parole officers like, we don't know what you guys did. And we're like, well, it was Jesus. I goes, whatever, keep doing it. Okay. We love that. We everyday people, ordinary people, like you, like me, who've come and have been able to reset because they've come back to the point where they realized, I need to start over. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to start over with Jesus. And so over the next weeks, the next two months, we're going to take a look at this message of Jesus and this idea of the gospel, the Bible presents, not just like all over, but in specific things that I think you need to be aware of as you then not only experience a restart, but you join us in helping others experience a restart. And so here's what I want you to do, just a little homework assignment. You have your sheet, your hand out there. If not, grab it on the way out. It's the sermon notes, and, and I know you, know you can read it and all that stuff. That's fine. That's not why I give it to you. But the ending, the last part of it, is a set of questions, very general questions, that I ask you to sit down with someone else this week, maybe your small group, maybe your family, maybe a coworker, a good friend, and just kind of start to process through some questions that would begin a restart in your life. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much for your love. It compels us to tell this story. And our world is different today than it was 50 years ago. But it's the same as it was 2,000 years ago. We're very religious and spiritual. And we just maybe just don't know you. 
Maybe we've heard the stories, we've accepted some truths, but we've not experienced them. And through this series of reset, I pray that all of us would have a reset. Whatever that might mean personally, in our lives, in our relationships, but most importantly, in our walk with you. Because that's all that matters. Because as Paul said, there's coming a day when you will judge the earth and we will stand before you. And the only thing that matters is the answer to the question, who's Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen.